Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. On today's episode, we're discussing the career of Spike Lee, one of the most iconic and prolific American filmmakers of the last 35 years. He has a new movie, Defy Bloods, hitting Netflix today. We'll talk about that and more with a special guest. Welcome to Film Club. So with movie theaters still closed for the foreseeable future, we've been spotlighting a lot of streaming releases here on Film Club. And this week, we we have a big one, a new film from Spike Lee. It's called The Five Bloods, and it premieres on Netflix this Friday. And so to help us discuss Spike Lee's filmography, we've brought on a special guest, which is Robert Daniels. Hi, Robert. Hey, Katie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Um, Robert is a critic in Chicago, so we see him a lot out and about back in the old days when we would go to screenings if you times a week <laughs> what's a screening <laughs> it's in this place called movie theaters that used to exist a long long time ago so robert uh you have your own website called 812 film reviews when did you start that um i started it um around 2017 uh when i was in grad school and basically wrote for it off and on and then once i graduated and had a life again um i then started writing more for it. So I've mostly been writing in the last two years, attending festivals like TIFF and Sundance and South by Southwest. And then as well as running your own site, you also freelance for a whole bunch of other sites. Like, uh, give us give us a few. Uh, read us your resume, Robert. Yeah, so I freelance for RogerRupert.com, The Playlist, Polygon, Consequence of Sound, uh, and just about anyone else who will take me. Cool, yeah. And you had an article recently about uh, John Boyega's speaking out against um, basically telling his racist fans to go fuck themselves uh, on Polygon and how that related to the Star Wars franchise. That was was a really cool article. Big hit. So congrats on that, man. Thanks, Katie. <laughs> so as we mentioned up top, we're talking today about Spike Lee, one of the most important American filmmakers of his generation or really any other. Lee, who has a new movie this week out on Netflix has made more than 30 features in as many years. He's directed documentaries, television, music videos, comedy specials, commercials, and video games. He's one of few directors, American and otherwise, who's genuinely a household name, in part because of his movies, but also because of the outspoken public persona he's cultivated over the years. Many of Lee's most beloved films concern race in America, but it's by no means the only topic he's tackled in his work. He's made films about music, basketball, Catholicism, generational conflict, uh, many films about New York, serial killers, uh, he's made heist thrillers, uh, and his 25th Hour is arguably the definitive post-9-11 movie. Spike Lee was born in Atlanta, raised in Brooklyn, and his first film was a NYU student film called Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop, We Cut Heads, but his first uh, commercially released film came out in 1986, and that is She's Gotta Have It, and what strikes me about She's Gotta Have It is how strong Lee's uh, style is straight out of the gate. You know, he's got a lot of directorial signatures. He calls them spikeisms. You know, first and foremost, I think the one everybody knows is he calls his films, all of his films are called a Spike Lee joint. That's the first one. And he does do this in this film. But there are a few other things as well, like uh, the direct address to the camera is a big Spike Lee signature. And um, it's got a dance sequence in the middle of it. He does love a dance sequence. Uh, and that's here in his first film. I actually rewatched this film recently. I had not 
not seen it in years since really since I was probably a teenager when I when I got into Spike Lee. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's one of his funniest. And um, beyond that, I think it's re- I do think it's remarkable how fully formed he was as a creative voice right from the start. I mean, she's got to have it is uh, in some ways a much smaller film than anything he made afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's I think it's his most genuinely independent production. Obviously, um, he's most of it's in black and white. Um, and it doesn't contain any any stars or anything, but uh, it I think it, it absolutely his uh, his sense of humor, his sense of style. You mentioned the um, the direct address characters literally addressing the camera. That's all that right there from the start. Um, I think if you saw this in '86, you would say that guy is going to have. Uh, a, a, a long and strong career. The term revolutionary is overused, but like for me, when I'm watching She's Gotta Have It, it is like truly revolutionary just because of the comfortability of the characters that he creates. These aren't caricatured black exploitation portrayals pitched to a hundred to be like cartoony or buffoonish. Um, nor are these like race films that became prominent you know, with Oscar Bichot and remained in the 60s, you know, espousing middle class urban values. Um, this one is, um, you know, it's kind of the natural successor to quote-unquote race films um, because it operates outside the studio system and feels so independent. Um, It's a recording of the several shades of black lives um, that makes it special from upper-class creatives to middle-class intellectuals and and urbanized individuals. Um, Like a character like Mars didn't exist prior to this film, nor did someone like Nola. Um, So Spike isn't really trying to appeal or please a white audience. Uh, These people are people that he knows and people that he's seen, and he's creating them specifically for himself and by virtue for us. Yeah, and in scenes like the Thanksgiving dinner scene, uh, he kind of has all these different aspects of, you know, uh, people he knows, and like you were saying, different aspects of, like, black life at the time. In di- like, they're literally in dialogue with one another, with, like, in the scenes where they're all in the same room. And another thing about this film, I find its sexual politics very progressive, even for 2020. You know, like, polyamory was not a big thing. Thing in 1986, but I I admire the character of Lola Dar no, Nola Darling, excuse me, because she is just very she knows what she wants, you know, and I I admire that about her. So uh, as you mentioned, Robert, uh, she's got to have it. it's a very independent production, and he followed that up with School Days uh, shortly after that. But I think his biggest um, he really came to the forefront in 1989 with Do the Right Thing which was, you know, critical and commercial success and got Spike Lee his first Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. And of course, he didn't win until 2019 for Black Klansman, uh, where he had this great quote when he did win Best Original Screenplay, which is, every time somebody is driving somebody, I lose. <laughs> that's, that's a great quote, referring to um, how they were up against Driving Miss Daisy in 1990 and then Green Book in 2019. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that that uh, it, it was it was up for an Academy Award because uh, it was not up for Best Picture that year. It went to Driving Miss Daisy, um, and uh, that was a a source of uh, some irritation with many people, uh, in, including a lot of film critics. Uh, I, and at the Oscars, I remember Kim Basinger on stage said uh, actually called them out for snubbing the film. Lee over the years has had a, a contentious relationship with the with the Academy Awards, who have often ignored some of his. 
Um, I think I think some of his best and and most ambitious work. Uh, although he has he's occasionally picked up nominations over the years um, before finally winning with Black Klansman. Um, Do the right thing was a, a, I mean it was not just a hit. It was it was a controversial film at the time, partially because I think there was a uh, a lot of racist debate that uh, the film was going to inspire a lot of rioting in the cities or something. Sure. And something that uh, Spike Lee says in the commentary for the film is that over the years, he's been asked by a lot of white journalists if he thought that Mookie does the right thing towards the end of the film. Uh, I'm not going to say exactly what that is in case you haven't seen it. But if you have seen it, if you haven't seen it, you need to do it right now. Uh, (laughs) But uh, he noted that it's only white journalists that ask him if Mookie does the right thing, which is a very interesting uh, observation. Now, um, but the film is at this point, uh, when the National Film Registry was started in 1999, Do the Right Thing was brought in right away. And I think at this point, it is kind of recognized as a classic. Would you call it an instant classic, though? Like, with the critical response at the time? I think it, w- I think it, was, inst- it was an instant classic. Um, and I think, that, I think that was reflected in, its, in its, at least its critical reception at the time. Uh, and... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably the the best movie of the 1980s. Honestly, <laughs> um, I saw the film when I was a teenager, um, and I remember one of the things that uh, it was the first Spike Lee movie I'd seen, and uh, I saw it at a time in which I was starting to take in uh, more movies and more movies by significant directors. I was starting to explore some of the history of cinema, and uh, I remember thinking at the time that this was. Uh, well, actually, this is probably me retroactively uh, applying this lens to it, honestly. But I think uh, partially what what was going on when I was watching it for the first time was um, I was seeing for the first time uh, a filmmaker who was putting uh, was putting himself, his personality, his ideas into every frame of the film um, in a way that I probably didn't understand when I first watched it. I think I was grasping the notion of autism watching Do the Right Thing because so much of Lee is is embedded in so much of that film. I saw this first in high school, so it's been over a decade. Um, And the first time I saw it, it brought questions that I had never confronted. The idolatry of white heroes and the way that Spike Lee disintegrates them, right, felt militant at the time. And up until probably about three weeks ago, still felt pretty militant. (laughs) Um, And uh, I I also gravitate toward uh, the symbolism of uh, Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee's character as patriarch and matriarch of the neighborhood. Um, In a neighborhood where there are noticeably very few black people of their age, you know, and the fact that Smiley uh, sells... um, pictures of Malcolm and Martin meeting together the one time they met together in person um, and how that translates to the just the dearth of uh, patriarchal and matriarchal um, figures within the neighborhood that can steer the the young tempestu- tempestuous um, uh, uh, black figures um, that quote unquote um, might have led to a riot. 
another thing about this film, and I think that's something that I appreciate about Spike Lee's filmography in general, is that, yes, it does deal with, you know, big issues like police murder and brutality and um, a lot of, like you were talking about, uh, the, the figures in the neighborhood and things like that. And it refers to a lot of this stuff, but it's also a very colorful film. And a lot of it is very fun to watch. And uh, and even the character of the mayor and his romancing of mother-sister is, it's comedic and it's sweet. And like, I, there's a really great, it's a really I, vibrant, I guess is the word I would use, the way that it depicts like this, this one block of this neighborhood and just every aspect of it from the, the, the traumatic to the joyful all in the course of one day. Just the way he sets that all up, it really, that sort of structure is really suited to his style, I think. It all comes together beautifully. Yeah, it's um, I'm I'm amazed at how consistently hilarious the film is on top of being about very, very serious things and and ending in um, I I will tread carefully here. One could say there's some tragedy at the end of this film, Um, but uh, on a whole, it's just it it, is a movie alive with the personalities that Lee puts on screen. You know, I mean, nobody in nobody in this movie is a caricature um, and he does create this entire it's like he creates this entire little petri dish of a neighborhood basically um and an entire and i think he sees it as kind of a microcosm of america in the 80s and uh, i think as we're seeing right now as well the idea of autourism and and the fact that like spike lee is literally in every frame of that film um and the fact that it leans so directly into the styles of the 80s like it fee i mean it's not just it just isn't like the best film of the 80s probably it's also emblematic of that period not just in the political conversations but the styles the colors the textures and the music and of course you know uh lee had he's made a lot of movies since do the right thing it really kind of, we're not going to go through each one one by one he's had a very long career with a, a lot of films but i do want to mention his follow-up to do the right thing which is mo better blues which came out in 1990 because it introduced one of the most quintessential spike lee signatures which is the double dolly shot and how that works is the effect when you're watching the films it looks like the actor is floating but what it is is when you have an actor and standing on a platform that the camera is also on and they're both dollying or moving at the same time and it gives the effect that someone is floating um there's some other examples of this do you guys any notable ones that come to mind for either of you guys uh, he's used it in a bunch of his films. I mean, I think it shows up in in Twenty Fifth Hour as well. Um, uh, I think uh, most recently it's in Black Klansman. Um, I think he at a certain point he realized that this was a signature for him. Um, it really it creates a sort of sense uh, not just that that the actor is floating, but that we're sort of almost occupying the physical, mental, maybe spiritual space of this character as they move through a location. Um, uh, the other example I can think of of a double dolly is uh, an Inside Man. Um, um, which does like take us into uh, can also I mean double dollar can also foreshadow like the the emotions that the character will act out on and uh, that film is also notable because it is was Lee's first collaboration with Denzel Washington with whom he's done four films and then Denzel Washington's son John David Washington starred in Black Klansman so th- that's one of but he he has a few behind the scenes folks too that he works with regularly. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I wanted to uh, that takes us to another Spike Lee signature that uh, the best example 
not perhaps not the best example, but the one that first comes to mind for me is the beginning of Malcolm X, and that is the political montage. Uh, are there any of any of those that come to mind for you guys? There's there's one that ends bamboozle that's enormously powerful. I think just sort of exploring the history of uh, racist imagery in. Um, in American pop culture. Uh, I think we'll get to that movie later um, when we start talking about favorites. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's one of Lee's most effective techniques is, and, and I think he's, I think he's really a master at this, at, at, at uh, sort of assembling these montages of real life events. Um, Defy Blood starts with one that's enormously powerful. Um, there's one in Black Klansman as well. Um, he, uh, his ability to sort of, uh, to sort of give us this speedy primer of American history and um, his sort of ability to give us this speedy primer on American history, it, all, it, often, it, it can often create this, uh, this really strong context for uh, whatever the fictional narrative is that, that comes after it, or before it, for that matter. One of the most interesting things about the, the way that he uses the montage is that it's, it's not just to like, um, highlight American history, but it's also to highlight black history, a history that is either sometimes well-known are not very well known um, and can definitely help to explain the motivations of the characters um, and uh, his narrative. I alluded to uh, Spike Lee having, you know, a long career, and I'm just going to name off a few titles. In 1991, he put out Jungle Fever, 92, Malcolm X, Crookling, Clockers, Girl 6, Get on the Bus, He Got Game, Summer of Sam, Bamboozled, 25th Hour, She Hate Me, Inside Man. Miracle at St. Anna, Red Hook Summer, Old Boy, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, Chirac, Black Klansman, and now The Five Bloods. And this whole time, he has always, another thing about Spike Lee is he is never fully committed to Hollywood or the studio system. He is undoubtedly a major auteur filmmaker, very recognizable name as a filmmaker, but he never, he's always sort of maintained distance from from that and uh i i wonder he's also a professor at nyu and i wonder if that gives him a little bit of freedom you know in the sense that he doesn't have to um he's he's got a backup basically he's got another source of income well it it should be noted that i mean spike lee has worked in the hollywood system quite a lot over the years and sure but uh, not exclusively you know i mean he's always kept it at arm's length a little bit and he's been critical of the system as well he has. I mean, I think. I think the main issue is that he has mostly maintained a degree of. Uh, I wouldn't even entirely say creative control because he's had pushback from the studios over the years. Uh, I think in, in in recent years, for example, he his version. So he, he did the remake of Old Boy, which, by the way, is very much a Spike Lee film in a lot of ways, in some of its signatures, in some of its ideas, uh, even, even as it operates in some respects as almost a, a, a scene for scene remake of the Park Chan-wook movie. Um, but it, it's sort of famously that his original cut of that, uh, the sequence where the main character is in, uh, is basically has been mysteriously jailed, uh, is is reported to have run an hour. <laughs> and the studio balked at that. Uh, I believe his next film had a... Um, it had the, 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 the usual moment at the beginning of the credits where it says a Spike Lee joint. I think it said an official Spike Lee joint, which was, <laughs> uh, I think, a, a nod to the fact that they 
that they did not allow his version. I would love to see a version where that sequence is an hour long. I really would. Um, <laughs> but I think over the years, he, he's worked in Hollywood, but I, I think that we've never seen him. I've never seen a, a movie of his where I've thought, uh, well, that was a total sellout move or there's no spike in that film. Um, even something like Inside Man, which is um, is a yeah. commercial thriller in a lot of ways, you know? I mean, that's that's very much a crowd pleaser. That has tons of his personality in it, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't know if he would be capable of making a movie where... He, where his idea, his his sort of uh, his abundance of ideas and personality doesn't peek through the cracks. Yeah, Inside Man is the one that I would cite as the one that is the most, you know, the, the idea of one for me, one for them. That is the closest to one for them that he's done. But like you said, it still has a lot of his signatures in it. It's it's still for him, you know. I mean, like it's still very much a Spike Lee movie. It's just a Spike Lee movie in the key of a crowd pleasing heist thriller. Mm-hmm. Spike has always made films for himself. However, there's rarely been a studio that's come to Spike and said, hey, like we want our name attached to Spike Lee's film in perpetuity, like you know, Paramount recently did with Scorsese and then later fell out of, fell out of but recently did with Scorsese. So it's only been recently that the financial viability of black director films, especially ones with political overtones that don't necessarily cater to uh, you know the middle taste of like white audiences, have become awards darlings for studios and even box office hits. So uh, there's always been this perception of Spike as a quote unquote risky bet, uh, especially as he's you know been outspoken um, against not just studios, but also the lack of diversity in studios, the lack of executives that have green light authority. Um, And so it's always been interesting to see a director of Spike's pedigree, or maybe not even interesting, but um, sometimes, I I don't know, saddening to see a a director of Spike Lee's pedigree. And yet, like, recently he dropped the uh, script that he'd been writing for the Jackie Robinson biopic, which for some reason can't find a financial backer. And you would think... Spike Lee, Jackie Robinson, that combo would immediately, it would immediately just shout commercial, you know, commerciality. But it's always been a difficult journey for him to get studio backing, and so I, I think some of his arms distance from you know studio system has hasn't part hasn't always been of his own choice. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in recent years, he uh, b- right before Black Klansman, um, he actually did make a run of of very independent films um, that sort of almost returned him to his his 80s roots of making movies on very, very small budgets. Um, I think both Red Hook Summer and The Sweet Blood of Jesus are, are uh, one would say, very independent movies. And uh, I mentioned uh, that he's worked with Denzel Washington a bunch of times and now uh, his son. Uh, but I wanted to mention a few other people that he's worked with a lot over the years. Ruth E. Carter, who is uh, one of the few costume designers who has widespread name net recognition. She's worked on a lot of his films, not all of them. Uh, but beginning with School Days, they started working together. But um, composer Terrence Blanchard, who is a very interesting person in his own right, uh, I recommend looking him up. He's worked with Spike Lee since Jungle Fever. And he also has an editor, his name's Barry Alexander Brown, who's worked with him since school days. So it's a great point that it is not entirely by choice, but he does sort of have his own island. You know, he's got his own spikely kind of um, crew that exists separately from the larger system. And uh, so, you know, we've talked a lot about his 
his style being very idiosyncratic and strong and personality driven and how it came straight out of the gate from his first film. Sometimes it works <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't. Now, I personally like the more idiosyncratic Spike Lee. I'd rather watch, uh, perhaps this is blasphemous, but I'd rather watch Chirac than Inside Man. I think it's interesting when he goes in uh, different wild directions. For me, when Spike doesn't work, I think Spike is one of the funniest directors out there. I mean, we've talked about it already with Due to Writing being a funny film on top of its social commentary and, and racial commentary. But um, I think sometimes tonally his, um, <laughs> his sense of humor doesn't always match the subject matter. So yeah, in Chirac, you have the end like sex battle scene after the women have gone on a sex strike to end gun violence in Chicago. Um, so you have this heady subject of gun violence that is punctuated by this end scene between Dupree, played by Nick Cannon, and Lysistra, played by Tayona Paris. Um, and like there is a bit of, you know, Spike sometimes has a bit of like juvenile humor. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't necessarily think it works there with that subject mm, matter. Mm. Um, I feel the same way in The Miracle at St. Anna, where you Ugh. have the Samuel... <laughs> you have Train, um, who's like this big uh, black soldier during... And this is set during World War II, obviously. Um, and he becomes like the protector of this Italian boy who's left speechless um after after witnessing a massacre but you know the boy calls him chocolate giant and <laughs> and then train mm-hmm. is kind of mentally showed as like you know uh i, I don't want to say like i'm just dumb basically you know it's basically showed as dumb and bug-eyed and like there is almost like this bojangles character vibes to like the like the italian boy being like a shirley temple which feels like oddly tone deaf to me considering the subject matter that's his worst movie in my opinion but um because that one is also i think super maudlin which is another thing that occasionally creeps into his films um is uh some kind of uh broad sentimentality as well um i agree that i think when he's sometimes when he's doing comedy when he's explicitly doing comedy the sensibilities can be a, be a little a little crass like a little crass for my taste you know i mean I've, I've never been a big fan of girl six or of um of she hate me although i would say that you, she hate me is one that also underlines that um he is a filmmaker who is always and this is not the worst problem to have as a filmmaker but he is always packing like he's always throwing like everything in the uh, everything and the kitchen sink into his films, you know? So you'll sometimes see one of his movies that's like, it's rare that he, um, I mean, he'll do a film that's two and a half hours and he is packing like everything he can think into it. And again, I don't think having too many ideas is that bad of a problem to have, but I think sometimes when a Spike movie goes off the rails, it's because um, he is basically just chasing these detours you know i think there's a lot of that and she hate me for example yeah i mean even i i would agree i think even like it is best films you know like black clans would just do that to a point too where um you know i we're gonna talk about the five bloods in a bit but you know um but Black Klansman, I always find the last 20 minutes to be the weakest part of the film. Agreed. You know, it's incredibly, like, superfluous. It really is Spike, like, trying to fit as much as he can, including the double dolly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, 
And then it's also at the same time, like this film that has been, you know, staunchly militant suddenly turns conciliatory toward the end. Um, and like, it totally doesn't vibe. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I will always applaud <laughs> the, the willingness to, to just, you know, throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. But yeah, sometimes it gets them into trouble. I do think it's interesting that you, um, you mentioned Black Klansman and uh, in that end stretch, it, it, you know, we were talking earlier about Do the Right Thing, which is, a, I think, a film that looks um, extremely timely right now um, and uh, probably has never gone out of fashion in that respect, has looked timely in the 30 years uh, since its release. Um, Black Klansman, though, um, and it's kind of olive branch that it extends to the police, I think now suddenly looks um, a little out of step with the moment. Yeah, certainly. Um, and I know that was, you know, this was a conversation among a lot of black critics about um, even the idea of like Ron Stallworth, you know, and uh, a um, cop being, you know, this the sentimental, you know, heroic censor of the film was controversial in and of itself, especially considering that the first assignment that Stallworth has is spying on Kwame Ture, who's like, it's like, you know, who's this obviously massive uh, civil rights figure. Um, So yeah, I, you know, looking at what's going on right now, uh, it, Two years ago, I think it was released by Clans. If you know, two years ago feels like in a millennium ago now. Yeah, yeah. To its credit, I will say that I think Black Klansman um, is even aware of that issue. You know, like that's that's part of the dialogue of the film. You know, I mean, you you literally have a character who is taking him to task for being part of the police force. Um, I, I remember when when these criticisms came out, Spike Lee came out and said. Um, I'm never going to say that all police officers are bad. Um, and I, I I wonder what he would say about that today. I'm not sure. Well, speaking of things being highly relevant to the present day, uh, let's talk about The Five Bloods. Um, so this movie uh, was something, this one also opens with a uh, politically charged montage. And what struck me about this, you know, I've been thinking a lot in recent days about how, uh, the late 60s seemed to be an interesting parallel to our current moment. And this film really, you know, it grapples with that. Uh, the basic plot of it is that there is a group of black Vietnam veterans who go back to Vietnam ostensibly uh, on sort of a tourist trip and to also uh, find their friend who was killed in action and to bury him. But really, they are there to dig up and cash in on a uh, cache of gold that they found and buried during the Vietnam War. And you have a core group, uh, a bunch of actors who have worked with uh, Spike Lee before. He brings back a bunch of people. Uh, Delroy Lindo, who was in Malcolm X. Clark Peters, who was in Red Hook Summer. Norm Lewis, who this is tangential, but he was in the TV series, the Netflix TV series of She's Gotta Have It. And uh, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., um, who uh, several of these guys were on The Wire, by the way. Um, and But Isaiah Whitlock Jr. has done five films with Spike Lee, uh, Chirac, Red Hood Summer, Black Klansman, 25th Hour, and then this one. And then you have Jonathan Majors, who is on the upcoming Lovecraft Country as his son, and Chaswick Bo- Chadwick Boseman as their, uh, their comrade, who was sort of the leader of their group who was killed in action back in Vietnam. Um, the script was written by Spike Lee and Kevin Wilmot, who also uh, collaborated 
collaborated with him on Black Klansman and Chirac. And so one thing I thought was interesting about this one is those two, they did a rewrite of a script. Uh, But the original script was written by Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, who are best known for their work with the direct-to-video horror studio Full Moon Pictures back in the 90s. (laughs) They did Trancers. They wrote Trancers. And now they're doing a Spike Lee film. (laughs) That's funny. I, I, I have to imagine that the script is a little different than it was. I imagine it's probably a pretty they, big yeah. rewrite. You know? they, it, it was probably just the concept of Vietnam veterans going back to get gold, if I had to guess. There is, there, I mean, there is an exploitation film element to the movie. Um, this sort of idea of returning to the jungles of Vietnam, and the movie does at some point kind of turn into a bit of an action film. Um, I would say a little bit to its detriment, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I really liked this film when it's operating as uh, kind of a hangout movie with these characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, the first, they don't even really, they don't really get back to the jungles of Vietnam until like an hour of screen time has passed, and that first hour we're just kind of hanging out with these uh, with these four men these older men who um, who served together in Vietnam and uh, Lee is just kind of luxurating in in the personalities he's created and in the chemistry between these actors Um, it reminded me a little bit of of Linklater's uh, Last Flag Flying actually where we're just seeing this reunion of of, of people who who used to be soldiers yeah I also liked the first hour of the movie quite a bit it was uh, I think my favorite part of the film Um, I, I thought there was some kind of sharp fun uh you know really funny commentary in there like there's uh towards the beginning of the film um you know when they have when they first arrive they're there for some sort of i guess it's a vietnam veterans reunion of some sort in vietnam and uh, so you know you see the screen and it says apocalypse now and they pull back and you see the budweiser (laughs) logo and all these people partying i thought that was a really really sharp joke (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, I would agree that I think the first hour is definitely the strongest. Um, after that, it gets pretty clunky with uh, transitioning between Academy Ratio and widescreen. And, yeah. then, <laughs> uh, and then, I don't, you know, the uh, idea that in the flashback scenes that Spike uh, didn't recast with younger actors. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was something. <laughs> no Irishman, no Irishman digital trickery there. They just look exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. This is definitely Which... what you would call one of the looser Spike Lee movies, one of the more idiosyncratic ones. You said it is a turns into an action film towards the end out, but something that I really know, I was like, this is a very dialogue driven action movie <laughs> it's very talky yeah yeah <laughs> i don't know if the if if the always the the character motivations make a ton of sense um i think we get some kind of wild you, you know robert you mentioned earlier veers in tone too there's some big ones in this film um uh, you know, so we'll have this kind of uh, this, this these sort of uh, jovial scenes of the characters just sort of uh, you know shooting the shit, and then also a scene of somebody being blown up by a landmine in very graphic detail. You know, <laughs> these moments are sometimes sitting like side by side. It was weirdly enough. It was like um, the first thing it reminded me of is it was Quentin Tarantino a bit. Mm. <laughs> oh yeah, those two famously violence, arrivals. Know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do think this is a much stronger film than his other war movie, which we mentioned earlier, which is Miracle at St. Anna, which um, I think succumb- that, that movie succumbs to a lot of uh, some of the worst cliches of, of 
big budget war movies, I think this one has um, at least has a lot more personality than that film does. Um, even though it, it also repeats the device of uh, one of the enemies, um, the enemy side basically broadcasting propaganda to the black soldiers, um, basically encouraging them to deflect because they're fighting for a country that doesn't that doesn't respect them, that brutalizes them back home. Uh, I think that's, and I, I do think that's one of the stronger through lines of the film. There's this, mm-hmm. there's also this, there's this amazingly powerful film or a moment in the film early on where all of them, uh, all of them hear via one of these broadcasts, they hear that uh, Martin Luther King has been assassinated. Uh, they did not know that at the time. Obviously there's no internet in the 19, the 1960s. Um, and uh, we, he ba- Lee basically handles it with uh, he basically splits the splits the screen into five quadrants, and we see each actor's reaction to that information. Yeah, I think there were some really there were a lot of interesting ideas in this film, which is why ultimately, even though you know, like in terms of like action thrills, I don't think it don't go into it looking for that. But I think there are a lot of interesting ideas in this film. You know, uh, kind of there's another scene early on where they talk about how, uh, you know, that when they came back to the U.S., they were received poorly and just sort of it, it, it kind of delves into these interesting middle areas where you have where you have them, these guys partici- participating on the one hand, they're fighting for a country that does not value them. But on the other hand, they are also, a, you know, tools of that government and they have to kind of reconcile with that as well. Like there's a scene early on where they're in a floating market and, you know, one of the vendors in the market starts yelling at them, you killed my mom and dad, you killed my mom and dad, you're GIs. And I think there's some interesting tension in the film with that idea as well. Uh, what does everyone think of the way uh, Spike handles uh, Lindo's character, who uh, it's revealed that of the, of the four veterans that he's become basically like a MAGA guy? He voted for Donald <laughs> Trump. Um, <laughs> how do you guys feel about that? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, Spike partly, you know, obviously Black Klansman partly is a, is a commentary on Trump. Um, and it feels like when it does that in Black Klansman, he goes, he veers far out of the way of, you know, the story that he's trying to tell. However, I think it works better here um, just because Delroy's character serves as, you know, as a commentary on Trump's, like, corrupt, corrupting rhetoric, you know, how it preys on the vulnerability of, you know, the self-thought disaffected or people who believe they've, you know, they've been wronged or stolen from, you know. Now, in the case of Delroy, he probably has been. But um, I find it interesting the way that he manifests that. And also, I find it interesting that, like, Delroy obviously um, is, without spoiling too much, is a person who has lost a father figure and that immediately makes him a terrible father figure. (laughs) Um, And without that guiding light that like that is his Malcolm that is his MLK he falls prey to the you know the worst elements of American political thought yeah and it talking about Trump does come up pretty naturally in a story about Americans abroad you know just in it's something that comes up when you go abroad I think it's much more natural in this film than it is in Black Klansman, honestly. I, 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 Black Klansman, um, 
one of the one of the things I, I do not care about uh, care for about that film, even though as, as much as I like it, is uh, I do feel that occasionally some of the uh, sort of the winks to what's happening now are a little a little on the nose. Uh, the film sort of going out of its way to uh, to sort of nudge us in the ribs about the fact that. Um, you know that that uh, there are some parallels between uh, what's happening in the late '70s and and what was happening uh, what's happening right now. Um, this film, I think, is a little bit more organic about that. Um, I I do think also that Lindo, I think that his character is probably the most interesting in this group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a strong performance. Um, I there's a part of me that couldn't help that I mean this is a, this is a larger critique of the film. I do kind of wish that the movie could just continue to hang out with these characters that it didn't have to turn into this. There's this whole treasure of the Sierra Madre Madre thing yeah. where it's like it turns into like there's some some gold that they're all uh, that they're all trying to get their hands on, and I found myself uh, wanting like gravitating back towards these characters. What have their lives been like over the last few decades? Um, I wanted to know more about that, and maybe, uh, and maybe less of a focus on some of the some of the mechanics of the of the war movie that it turns into. Yeah, and then to piggyback on the treasure of Sierra Madre, like and Spike Lee being <laughs> way too on the nose yeah. <laughs> this, with, with with his references, what he's referring to, you know, even lifting the line, you know, "We don't need no stinking badges." Yeah, um, it's just like you know he he's almost like consumed by narratively and like stylistically matching that film that it takes away from uh, you know the 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 gem that he has be of of seeing these of having these characters existing in each other's spaces and you know catching up and dealing with the their respective psychological and emotional traumas Okay, so uh, getting towards the end here, I just want to wrap things up by asking everybody, what is your favorite Spike Lee movie? Well, we all named one, which is, you know, an undisputed classic masterpiece, which is Do the Right Thing. And then, you know, uh, what were your other choices, Dowd? Um, okay, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Bamboozled. Um, so that was a, a film of his that came out at the sort of t- turn of the century in 2000. Uh, it was not... It was not very well received at the time. It was at least divisively received. Um, it's basically a satire um, that casts uh, Damon Wayans as uh, he basically is a black executive at a at a major TV uh, studio, and uh, in kind of a producers like scheme, decides to come up. He basically is looking to get out of his contract. He hates working there, so he comes up with this scheme to get out of it by basically creating this extremely racist. Uh, it's basically like a modern minstrel show that he'll put on television. And the idea is that if the show, uh, the show will be immediately uh, denounced by America, and he'll be fired, and, and he'll be out of his contract. Um, the show is not denounced by America. Uh, it, 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 by the way, it involves, uh, he basically pulls two street performers uh, in uh, as stars and uh, two black uh, street performers, and they put blackface on. And uh, the America loves it, and uh, a, a lot of America sort of defends uh, their appreciation for it on, like, ironic terms. They're like, oh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's aware of itself or something. Um, and the whole film becomes this, uh, this, I would say, this pretty withering critique of uh, the notion, A, the notion that racism does not exist in America anymore, but also of the idea that uh, it, it, 
it mutates to to survive in other ways. And, and in this case, I think um, Lee is sort of taking aim at uh, the use of ironic racism in uh, in certain American pop culture entertainment and in the endurance of uh, racist imagery. Um, I think it's a it's it's one of his most powerful films. Uh, it's not a perfect film. I mean, I think few of his films are perfect. Um, actually, I don't believe in perfect films. Period. But um, I do think that there are a few issues with the film, and, and it, having been made in the early two thousands and shot on video, uh, it's a movie that often uh, uh, some of it looks kind of crude uh, because you're you're looking at early two thousands digital, which. Um, is uh, not something that uh, looks great, I think, often. But uh, I think this is uh, not just his most underrated film, but one of his most powerful. And uh, you, you, uh, you chose Bamboozled as well, Robert. Yeah, I did. I um, agree with all of Alex's points. Um, and you know, Brand- I mean, Bamboozled. I mean, it's just. I think it's probably Spike Lee's most brazen film, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just because of the high wire act of portraying blackface. And the fact that, like, Spike Lee in that film doesn't completely, uh, you know, denigrate the historical legacy of blackface. Blackface, for a time, was the only way that black performers could earn a living, could get, you know, parts in minstrel shows. Um, And it really comes through in Ruthie Carter's, like, you know, beautiful and and vibrant um, costumes. Um, and then obviously Spike Lee's love of song and dance comes through too, and his you know his adoration with uh, classic MGM musicals visually comes through as well. And then it also demonstrates you know racism that's present in um, in television boardrooms, right? And how much control black creatives have over the art that they. Well, in, in this case, yeah, the art that they put out to the masses. There's a scene where Pierre you know, Wright sends in his pilot, and it's ready to go. It's ready to film, um, and you know the white executive basically does rewrites and believes that he knows black culture better than this black person. Um, and I also think I think Bambooza has one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> I think through Spike Lee's career, which is the when they first uh, perform this TV show in front of a live audience. The fact that Spike Lee had assembled this audience of extras and did not tell them that they were going to be watching a blackface show. So when he does like the reaction shots to the crowd, those are real reaction oh, shots. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that. Wow. Uh, so yeah, it's, I I. I think everything about it, it's one of the most brazen films Spike's ever made. It's definitely one of his angriest. Well, your your other choice, Robert, was uh, Get on the Bus, which came out in uh, 96. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I mean, Ozzy Davis as an actor, you know, thankfully got a late career um, uh, charge from being in Spike Lee's films. Um, and he's always known for, you know, his famous line and do the right thing. But my favorite performance of his in a Spike Lee film is in Get on the Bus. Um, I I love, and sometimes I get sensibilities of get of of Get on the Bus and uh, the Five Bloods. Uh, there's this one scene where um, Melvin is uh, recording, is filming everything with the Super Eight camera, and there's a similar uh, uh, conceit and. 
get on the bus with uh, this character X, who is a film school and is recording this group of black men who are heading to the Million Man March in Washington. Uh, similarly, it's also a spiritual pilgrimage for everyone on board as they explain their past traumas and you know what it means, what it means to be black in America. So your other choice, Dad, was one of Spike Lee's documentaries, which we should note. He's done a lot of great documentaries over the years. Uh, Four Little Girls is one that uh, was also very powerful. That's one of my favorites. But you picked When the Levees Broke. Yes. So that uh, is a a four-hour documentary he made for HBO in 2006. Uh, it is, uh, it's a documentary about Hurricane Katrina and specifically about the government's, uh, botched response to it. Um, and, uh, I think that Lee is actually, he's a fabulous, I think, documentary filmmaker. Um, I think that there's, there's a, a deep amount of control about what he's doing as a documentary filmmaker. Um, I think that he, uh, both in the choosing of his subjects, but also in the sort of, uh, I would say almost the moral clarity of, um, uh, of how he assembles the films as well. Um, I think uh, When the Levees Broke is such an exhaustive exploration of that subject. I mean, it really puts its four hours to use. Um, and it ends up operating, I think, uh, simultaneously as like a a procedural about what went wrong there. Uh, it, it's sort of a snapshot of, uh, of the natural disaster, but also of the government's botched response to it. But it's also a celebration of New Orleans um, and... Uh, I think it's 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 an enormously moving and um, and vital piece of of journalism above anything else, maybe. Well, I just want to take a minute to thank once again Robert Daniels for being our guest today. Thank you so much for coming on, Robert. Thanks for having me, Katie and Alex. Yep, thank you. You can find Robert online at 812filmreviews.com and his Twitter handle is at 812filmreviews. Robert will be reviewing The Five Bloods for the playlist this week. So check that out. And we'll also run a review of the film on the AV Club later this week. Thank you so much for joining us for a special edition of Film Club. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.